And this evening we are continuing our series of studies in uh, the seven I am statements. Uh, today we will be looking at two of them. I am the good shepherd and I am the resurrection and the life. John chapter 10 and verse 11 tells us, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This I am statement comes immediately after the previous one, which uh, we learned about I am the door to the sheepfold or I am the gate. The job of the shepherd to lie at the door as the door so that no enemy can get in. So this comes soon after that from I am the door. Jesus says he is the good shepherd because not only is he the door, to give us life, not only is he the protector, but also he says he is willing to go to that extent of even giving his very life for us. Now, for us who are living in cities, now we don't see much shepherds around. And we may wonder why did Jesus call himself a good shepherd? But this image of a shepherd is found right throughout the Bible because you know there were a lot of shepherds in the uh, Jewish culture, they were primarily the Israelites who were shepherds and uh, as a result the Lord himself kept referring him to himself as the shepherds. Shepherd then became anonymous with leadership, whether it was political, whether it was spiritual, there was always the reference, if you say somebody was a shepherd, we spoke about a, a leader. But also, if you notice, you know, the Lord also spoke about you know, how there were bad shepherds in the Old Testament times. As well as here now, Jesus introduces that thought about good shepherds and bad shepherds as well. So the context of this particular verse, you know, the background you find in chapter 9, where you have the story of the man born blind. And when he is uh, healed by Jesus, the Pharisees are very, very upset. You know? And as a result, they throw him out of the congregation. Now, Jesus takes that incident that has happened in John chapter 9, which the people around are also being aware of. He takes that and he says, hey, there are these bad shepherds who do these things, who don't really give life, but who actually bring about death. They don't want to see anybody being whole. But on the other hand, I am the good shepherd. So this is where he speaks about the negative imagery of the shepherds, you know, like those who are thieves and bandits and strangers and hired hands who refuse to see. And this was all the veiled metaphors for the Pharisees. Now, obviously, if you are a Pharisee at that time and Jesus was speaking to the crowds like this, you know, about a hireling, you know, who runs away, you would have always said, hey, he's talking about me. So, here if you notice, the formerly blind man not only refuses to follow the Pharisees, because that's what they were doing all along, but now courageously also opposes them, because now he is able to see clearly. Earlier when he was blind, he was following them, because that's all what people told him to do. Now that he has got his sight, he is able to see very, very clearly. So, Jesus uses this situation that has happened, and from there, he is bringing out this principle of a compare and contrast between the Good Shepherd 
and the bad shepherd. So in verse 11 he speaks about the good shepherd, verse 12 and 13 in contrast he speaks about the hired hand or the hireling and then verses 14 to 18 he again speaks about the good shepherd. So understanding first of all this good shepherd metaphor. Now he is a good shepherd, good shepherd. Now William Barclay notes that there are two Greek words for good. One is agathos which simply means the moral quality of a thing but the other one kalos which is the one that is used in this verse means that a thing or a person who goes beyond good to lovely. In other words not just the normal somebody who is in a super good. Now that's the understanding of this word good. Why is he such a super good shepherd? <coughs> because you notice in this passage we learn about how he protects the sheep from attacks, he will not abandon his sheep, he cares for his sheep, he searches for sheep and brings them into his pen, he knows his sheep, he loves his sheep and is willing to even lay down his life for the sheep. So Jesus is not just the shepherd. The psalmist, if you notice, Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. But Jesus says he is the good shepherd. In other words, he's not like the past shepherds that they had. The shepherds of Israel previously were robbers and thieves and they harmed the people. As we learned the prophets telling them in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Ezekiel or Jeremiah, God constantly uses analogy of being a shepherd to lead the people and say, hey, you misuse your job. You are not really being a good shepherd. Secondly, he speaks about the good shepherd lays his life for the sheep. Now, some shepherds may lose their lives, you know, because they are sitting at the gate, you know, the enemy is coming, animals are coming. Sometimes they may lose their lives. It's a risky job. But the sh shepherd, the one who looks after the animal sheep, does not go to the field intending to die. But Jesus came into this world specifically intending to die. That's a big difference when he says, I lay down my life. In other words, it is not that he was caught unawares, the enemy attacked him and he died. And then there was some spiritual message that was brought out of that. No, 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 no. Jesus did not just risk his life in that sense, but he came for the specific purpose of dying. And he says that's not going to, to be the end. I have also power to lay down my life and I also have power to take it up again as well. So when he leaves the disciples, he's saying, okay, this is what is going to happen. Yes, I'm going to die. Yes, I'm going to rise again, but also I'm going to give you the gift of the comforter and I will take you to the place that I have prepared for you. So this is not a, you know, a good shepherd which is dead and gone, no absentee shepherd as it were, but an ever-present shepherd who is there with us at all times and he says, because I live, you will live also. That's the understanding of this metaphor of the one who is the good shepherd, one who lays down his life for us. He volunteered himself. It was in a, a specific personal act of the will. 
he was not the victim of a plot he was not caught on a bias he came to die that's why the scripture tells us when it was time the time has come he set his face towards jerusalem as a flint he knew this was the time to die but if you notice in, a, in the synoptics and that is matthew mark and luke and john there's a little difference because of how this is approached in the synopsis it is god who acts whereas in the in john's gospel it is the son who acts in obedience to the father but of his own accord i lay down my life i have power to take it up again in the synoptics jesus prays father all things are possible to you please remove this cup from me however not what i desire but what you desire whereas in john's gospel he speaks about jesus laying down for his life for us but also that he would take it up again so in john's gospel jesus death resurrection and ascension together constitute one single salvation action it is not just the death it is not just the burial it is not just the resurrection but it is also the ascension all these things together comprise of the fact that he is the good shepherd in the synoptics and the book of acts the emphasis is on god raising jesus from the dead but in john's gospel jesus is the one who takes up his life again no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and i will raise him up at the last day so he has part to lay down part to take up as well so let's look at four things sena that the good shepherd does for his sheep number 1 he lays down his life for the sheep that's what we have been looking down so far okay he lays down his life for the sheep jesus compares himself with this hired hand who is not the shepherd who does not own the sheep so as a result that personal and uh, uh, that shepherd is not personally investing his life in the caring of the sheep he doesn't care about them as soon as you see the first sign of trouble he leaves the sheep let the sheep die let the sheep be mauled by these wild animals you know because he is not a good shepherd he is just there for his job he is paid for his job hoping that nobody will come at that particular time we have good watchmen and bad watchmen your watchmen should be willing to fight the enemy you have you know good good watchmen are willing to fight the enemy but bad watchmen either they'll be sleeping you know but or when the enemy comes you know they will run off leaving the place open for the entry of the enemy but jesus says he is the good shepherd because he cares for the sheep he doesn't run away from the sheep when trouble comes and he willingly intervenes and defends even to the point of being willing to die to save us now what does that tell us for our lives today yes jesus died on the cross yes we accept that yes he is a good shepherd to lay down his life but the question here is jesus is willing to care for us when we go through troubles when we go through tough situations when we come to him we can be assured that he does not run away that he willingly intervenes if he was willing to give his very life for us how much more he would be willing to help us 
in our point of need. So we can be assured because he is a good shepherd, he will never ever abandon us or forsake us. Secondly, the scripture tells us he knows his own and his own know him. That's the second thing about the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. If you notice that's the qualitative part of the first part where he says I know. You know. In other words, not just the knowledge. So when we say that Jesus knows me, I know the Lord. What Jesus is saying is even as just as the father knows me, and I know the Father. That's the intimacy of the Good Shepherd. Ask ourselves this evening, do we have that intimacy? Jesus is a Good Shepherd. He won't abandon us. But he's also saying, I want to have that intimate relationship with my sheep. That intimacy that the Father and Son has, he says, that is what the Good Shepherd has for us. And he wants us to come into such a close relationship with him. Now to have a close relationship with anyone means investing time and energy in the relationship, isn't it? Whether it's between husband and wife, husband and uh, parents and children, children and uh, parents, whether it is in a time for relationships in, uh, in the church, any relationship in order to become close requires that we invest time and energy. So if our relationship with God, as Jesus is saying, I want them to have that type of a close intimacy as the Father and Son have, if it is nowhere close to that, we must ask ourselves, is it because we are not really investing time and energy in building up that relationship? Maybe I've taken it for granted. Yes, he is my shepherd. We know Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, so I don't bother about anything. But we have that relationship with him that the good shepherd wants us to have. Thirdly, he says, I have other sheep that he wants to bring into the fold. He says, I have other sheep. You know. There are people who do not know this truth of the good shepherd. Now, the good shepherd is not really happy with the twelve disciples. Good shepherd is not just happy, okay, I finished my job, dying on the cross, that's it. No. His concern is for those people for whom he died who have not responded to him. His heart moves for them. And if we are followers of the good shepherd, we should also be having that same concern to look and to bring more sheep, more people into God's flock. I'm sure you read the book by Philip Keller, which is called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And Keller talks about his experience as a shepherd in East Africa. He says the land adjacent to his was rented out to a tenant shepherd who didn't take very good care of his sheep. His land was overgrazed, eaten down to the ground. The sheep were thin, diseased by parasites and attacked by wild animals. And uh, Philip Keller describes how his neighbor's sheep would line up at the fence and blankly stare in the direction of his green grass and his healthy sheep almost as if they yearned to be delivered from their neglectful, abusive shepherd. They longed to come out to the other side of the fence and belong to him. In the same way, we must ask ourselves, is our life 
so motivating to the people who are watching us to find out, hey, what do these sheep have that I don't have? Is that our lifestyle? If we are close to the Lord, if we are contented with the Lord, our lives should show forth who Jesus is so that the ones who do not know the Lord should be willing to, hey, what makes this person tick? How come this guy is so contented? How come this person is so peaceful? How come he's going through so much tough times but you know, he is not breaking down, he is not cursing God? The other sheep who are look on the other side of the fence should be gazing at us and wanting what we have. Is that how our lights are shining? A question to ask ourselves. Fourthly, the good shepherd works for unity because the goal is one flock and one shepherd. That's the goal. That's the goal. The Lord's goal is that there will be only one shepherd, but there's all the sheep coming under that umbrella. Now you notice in Jesus' time there were the Jews, there were the Samaritans, there were also the Greeks. Now, when he was here on earth itself, he combined or brought these under one umbrella. Jews and Samaritans said, hey, we have nothing to do with them. You know, Greeks said, hey, we are not you know, really the Jews, you know, so they were separate. But Jesus, because what he did or what his desire was to bring unity among the flock, he united all of them together in what basis? Not a ecumenical basis, not on the basis of we are all children of the same God. No, no. He said it is through him as they go through the gate, as they become his sheep, then that is what unity is all about. So Jesus is a unifier, not a divider. But it is sad today to see how many people use Christianity as a weapon or a means of division rather than a source of unity. Finally, let me close on this section with an illustration of the voice of the Good Shepherd. The story is told of an American tourist who was traveling in the Middle East. He came upon several shepherds whose flocks had intermingled while drinking water from a brook. And after an exchange of greetings, one of the shepherds turned toward the sheep and called out, Mana, Mana, Mana. It means, follow me in Arabic. Immediately, his sheep separated themselves from the rest and followed him. Then one of the two remaining shepherds again called out, Mana, Mana. And his sheep left the common flock to follow him. Now this tourist then said to the third shepherd, I would like to try that. Let me put on your garments, your turban and see if I can get the rest of the sheep to follow me. The shepherd smiled knowingly as the traveler wrapped himself in the cloak put the turban on his head and then he called out mana mana but did the sheep respond no the sheep did not respond to the stranger's voice not one of them even moved anywhere close towards him will the sheep ever follow someone other than you the tourist asked the shepherd and the shepherd said oh yes sometimes a sheep gets sick then it will follow anyone it's an important truth there, isn't it? You know, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So if you're following the good shepherd, you hear his voice. But when do you stop hearing his voice and following after other shepherds, wrong shepherds, false shepherds? When you're fallen sick. We're not in 
close walking with the Lord. When you have gone astray, when you think God has abandoned you, that's the time. There are these other false shepherds who come around and say, hey, come, come, I will give you this, I will give you this. And when you're not in right relationship with God, it's easy to follow the voice of the false shepherd. So this evening, ask yourself, are you following the voice of the good shepherd or are you following the voice of the other shepherds that are so much prevalent in our world today? False shepherds giving their own package you know, of what they say is the gospel, which is not the gospel. And just as much as in the Old Testament, as well as in this passage, Jesus was trying to draw a difference between the false and the true. We must ask ourselves, are we following the good shepherd in our lives even this evening? The next uh, I am statement is, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. The culture today, the society today, encourages us to look inward. You know. In other words, they say, look at the mirror and ask yourselves, what do you, I want? What will make me happy? It is all about my inner needs. The world we live in encourages an unprecedented level of self-centeredness. People are always talking about the me, me, me. I want this. I want this. You know? And the world revolves around, as they would say, the three friends, I, me, and myself. But Jesus gives us a very different perspective. He tells us that we must look outside of ourselves to have hope, peace, and purpose. And we must look to Jesus for life because there is no life apart from him. John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, if you notice the context of these two verses are in the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Notice Mary and Martha were absorbed with themselves, isn't it? When Jesus came along, they said, Lord, if you had come, not, not come, if you had come in earlier, things would not have been like this. They didn't think about what Jesus could do. They were thinking only about themselves. And Jesus takes them out of that thinking internally about themselves and thinking about how, what God is able to give to us. He is able to give us life. So this evening, if you are going through life with a lot of frustrations because your inner needs are not met and you know, you are unhappy with life, Jesus says, hey, don't look inside. Don't try to you know, unpeel an onion more and more, more and more, more and more. Don't do your self-psychology on yourself trying to find out what is happening, why it's happening. The Lord says, hey, look outside of yourself. He says, I've come to give life. You know. Anything that is dead, I'm able to resurrect it. I'm the one who gives life. So if you notice in verse 23, Jesus, no, Martha tells Jesus, Lord, if you have been here, my brother would not have died. You know, hey, look at the accusation she puts on Jesus. He says, you are the one who is responsible for my brother's death. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. You know, what is Martha's response? She says, I know, I know, I know. I know he will rise again at the last day. Okay. But Jesus is saying, hey, hey, I'm not talking about something in the future. He says, I'm the one speaking to you for the present. 
am the one who gives life today. Now, oftentimes when you think about eternal life, we think about something that is in the future, isn't it? Yeah, we know one day we will spend time with him. Yeah, we know one day all tears will be removed. Yeah, one day we know everything will be, you know, good. But Jesus says, no, I've come to give you life today. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The Bible doesn't say if any man is in Christ, he will become a new creature when he dies and goes to be with God. No. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. All things have become new. In other words, there's a newness in our life in the present. Yes, in the future it will be where the very presence of sin is going to be removed. But in the present, Jesus is telling Martha, Hey, I've come to give you life. I've come to give you Lazarus life. Do you really believe this? So whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This verse is speaking about you know, the first part of I am the resurrection and the life. So when he says whoever believes in me though he die yet shall he live. He says hey there is going to come a time definitely that I am going to raise up. You know, uh, not only Lazarus after he dies again but anyone who dies he will live. But the second part of it I am the resurrection and the life. Okay. The part of the life is defined by and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In other words, I'm going to give them eternal life and that eternal life is going to continue on. That is why it says he will never die. Now, eternal life, the word means entheos, the very life of God. It's not just the quantity of life, it's the quality of life. When Jesus comes into our lives, it is the very life of God coming inside of us and that is the life that's going to continue on. Our physical bodies may die, but the spiritual life that is in us is going to continue on. So Jesus makes it explicitly clear that there is no life after death apart from Jesus and there's no life prior to death apart from Jesus as well. In other words, if you want to have life here in this world, respond to Jesus. If you want to have life after you die, respond to Jesus. So let's look at understanding the life metaphor. Number one, death is the enemy of humanity. Death is the enemy of humanity. There are a lot of people who are afraid of death. And the Bible very clearly tells us when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he took away the sting of death. He took away the fear of death. But in spite of that, there are a lot of people today, even though they are believers, they still have that fear of death. No, we don't have to fear death anymore. The Bible says it is appointed to man once to die wants to die. Now death is the result of the sin of disobedient that Adam and Eve had when they responded not in obedience to God but in disobedience by eating of the fruit of that tree. We find this in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17 which says the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it but the Lord God warned him you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now, did Adam and Eve die immediately? 
not immediately but they did die spiritually immediately physically much later so this is where the two meanings of death comes in the two meanings of death genesis chapter 3 and verse 19 by the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made for you were made from dust and to dust you will return now that is the physical death okay that's the first part of it now adam and eve didn't die immediately adam in fact lived a 930 years after which he died okay so there's not a contradiction to say hey god said he will die but he was alive no no but at that particular point of time they were separated from god god banished them from the garden of eden that is what the spiritual death is all about and that's happened immediately isn't it so yes the enemy of humanity is death yes there are two types of death one is the physical and one is the spiritual but in the midst of all this understanding of death both the old testament as well as the new testament speaks about the resurrection as well so the resurrection is not just a new testament concept even in the old testament you notice in isaiah chapter 26 verse 19 it says your dead shall live their body shall rise you who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy for your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead Isaiah the prophet spoke about it even though you know Jesus resurrection had not yet happened Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 says that at that time shall arise Michael the great prince who has charge of your people and there shall be a great time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time but at that time your people shall be delivered everyone whose name shall be found written in the book and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life some to shame and everlasting contempt and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn away uh, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever so Old Testament prophecies, you know, Old Testament speaks about God saying this, there's going to be a resurrection. Daniel, you speak about what is going to happen in the end times, you know, that the Lord will raise the uh, people from the dead. So, these are promises that God has given to us, you know, in his word that God will raise the dead. And the reality of this, what we have seen in the life of Jesus, is the hope. For every believer a person may say how do you know there's life after death how do we know that you know you will live you know, after you die you know okay those are good promises to think of in the old testament but what is the guarantee nobody has died and come back no jesus did die and come back that's the hope of every believer <coughs> jesus spoke about it john chapter 5 Verses 24 onwards, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to execute judgment because 
he is the son of man. So he says, so don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus prophesies this is what's going to happen and by his death, burial and resurrection it was shown, yes, there is life after death. Now for Lazarus, when he raised him from the dead, when Jesus is speaking, I am the resurrection and the life, people who are standing there would have thought like Mother, they say, yes, he's going to rise again someday. But when he rose, when he resurrected Lazarus from the grave, if you notice the next chapter speaks about when they came for the Passover, there are a lot of people who came around to see Lazarus and you know, they wanted to find out, hey, you know, this guy was dead and you know, now he's alive. He wanted to see who is he, what happened. Now that is what resurrection and the life is all about. When God gives us that resurrected life, then people are interested to know, hey, this is something different. It is not speaking about just a hope after you die, but life in all its fullness here on earth and then people want to see what is happening. So our lifestyle should show that. Our lifestyle should not be a pie in the sky in the sweet by and by we are looking for eternity. There are a lot of people who say oh, life is so tough I hope Jesus comes back soon. No, it is tougher to live here on earth and to you know live for the Lord. And that's what God expects of us. Don't look at cop-out solutions, you know, like spiritual suicide in that sense. They say, God, please take me home. I don't want to go through all these hardships. No, no. God has kept us here so that through the resurrected power of the Lord Jesus in our lives, other lives will be transformed as well. So there's going to be a resurrection for all humanity. The believers in Christ will be raised to eternal life while the unbelievers will be raised to eternal judgment. Okay, So the promise then of the resurrection has an enormous impact on our lives. Not just for the future, but even spiritual life for the present. For the future, if we are resurrected, death with all its pain and suffering is just a brief transitional period. This is why Paul speaking about in a uh, death and dying in 2nd Corinthians 4 7 to 12 he speaks about we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not in us okay he says this just we are just jars of clay God, jars of clay can easily be broken but this is to show that there's a greater power that is living in us so that the very life of Jesus can be seen forth through our human lives. That's why he says, even though death is working in us, it is life in you. So resurrection, yes, we are weak, yes, we are frail, but the Lord says, I am the resurrection. I am able to bring life into your dead systems. You know? And the Lord says, if you are willing to do that, then he indeed is the resurrection and the life. Now, Couple of thoughts about the meaning of this I am statement. Number one, this I am statement is a very personal one. Where Jesus is not just saying he is the, the way he is speaking about, he indeed is the life. When John 14, 6 says, I am the 
way, the truth and the life. I, I am the life. I am the resurrection and the life. It's Jesus who is able to restore us. It is Jesus who is able to rescue us. We were all on our journey to death. We were drowning in the midst of hopelessness. Jesus set in, paid the price for us. And he says, he is the resurrection and the life. And in him, we find salvation and the life that we are all searching for. People are searching, searching, searching. But it is through Jesus that we can have life-giving power, resurrection power. Secondly, the meaning of the one who believes in me, whoever puts their hope in him. That's just the uh, basic requirement. That's all that we need to do. We don't have to earn our salvation. We just have to place our trust in the finished work of Jesus. And then he does the rest for us. The meaning of even though they died, you know, remember the context here, Lazarus has died, you know, but he will rise again. This real event symbolizes what we will go through. The mortality rate right now you know, is 100% that each one of us will die of physical death. The John George Bernard Shaw who made this statement that statistics on death are staggering. One out of every one person dies. But Jesus here is speaking about something different. Though we die a physical death, we will be raised again spiritually. Our death here on earth is a gateway to eternity to be free from the pains of this life. Then, what does it mean to say we will never die? Okay. So Jesus is here is speaking about the life that we can have after death. By placing our hope in Jesus, we attain the promise of salvation. In other words, we are going to have that spiritual life. We will never die because eternal life in us is not going to be over. That's going to continue on. So Jesus ends that with this statement of, do you believe this? And that's what we need to ask ourselves even this evening. Do we believe? Or would we say like Martha, yes, yes, I believe you are the resurrection and the life. Yes, one day when we die, we will not be resurrected. No, no. Jesus is saying, in the present, I am. Remember, I am statements are for the present today. It's not a future statement. I am in the present. I am the one who is able to give you life. I am the one who is able to resurrect, bring to life that which is dead. So why does the resurrection of Jesus matter for us today? Number one, it matters because you will die. You will die. Death can be scary. Death is no respecter of persons. You know, if the Lord delays his return, we will all die before that. Okay? But the question is, what will happen to you when you die? That all depends on how you answer Jesus' question to Martha, do you believe this? Not just do you believe this is true, but do you believe this is true for you now? Is Christ living in you now? Because if Christ is living in you now, death is just a doorway, just an entrance into eternity. So knowing that we will all die, death is certain, we must prepare ourselves for death. Knowing that we do not know when the day or the hour comes, we must be prepared for death. How do you prepare ourselves? Believe in him. Believe in what? 
the finished work of Christ, that you don't have to do it. He has done it for you, accept it by faith. It also matters because our loved ones will die. Our loved ones will die. So, <coughs> when our loved ones and I die, yes, there is grieving, definitely. It is okay to grieve. But in the midst of that grief, we can grieve as those who have hope. Because Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. The sting of death has been removed. <coughs> to the unbeliever, this is all nonsense. For the Hindus, maybe it will speak about, okay, you're going to go through cycles. For the 80s, they will say, just become nothingness. You know. Some other people will say, you have attained your nirvana, you've become one with God. And they come up with all their thoughts about life after death. Now for some people, death is the grim reaper, it is final. But the idea of robbing death of its power is preposterous. To say you don't have to fear death, death has lost its sting, is preposterous. It is only by faith that these truths can be grasped. And then when we grasp those truths, we live by those truths. We don't fear death. That is why people who are willing to give up their lives for what they believe, it's because they don't fear death. And our faith must be willing to die for what we believe in. But if you have questions about death, you say, no, no, I don't want to die. So if somebody says, you know, renounce Christianity, you say, okay, I better renounce Christianity because I want to live. That's stupidity. Because finally, then you are definitely going to die, whether it is from the enemy or naturally. But the issue is what is going to happen to you after you die. As believers, we don't have to fear death. You know, our faith has to be strong enough that is why Jesus asked Martha this question. Is this your faith that you are living by? Is this what you are living by? Remember when Jesus started out his ministry, you know, wedding at Cana? She came around and said, hey, do something. You know, Mary and Martha, they were at the wedding at Cana. Do something. You know, he said, my hour has not yet come, but he did it. At that particular point of time, their concern was, Hey, Jesus would do something physical. Their minds were still on that. And here when it comes to Lazarus, close friend, their immediate thought was, Hey, if Jesus is our close friend, then nothing bad should happen to us. Do we have that mentality in our lives as well? I'm following Jesus and so nothing bad should come. But Jesus, you know, you know, take this picture out from you. Yes, death is a reality. Yes, our loved ones will die. But in the midst of that, we have the hope. When death looks us in the face, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear life either because we can still continue on with life with the blessed hope that we have. Now this is not enough fatalism. This is not a question of you know, arrogance, but this is a question of faith and trust in God when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In the midst of death, sorrow and weeping, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? My prayer is that this evening we'll be able to say, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. And our answer 
to the question, do you believe this? Not just in our head, not theory, not doctrine, but do you have that life-giving power flowing through you? Even as Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, is that dynamis power flowing through us? Because that is what this passage is speaking about. Let's bow our heads and pray together.